Welcome back to a special edition episode of Tour Guide Talk for the Dispatch Official Podcast of Battle Franklin Trust. Uh, today, Bill and I are joined by our assistant curator, Bailey Lawrence, and we're going to talk a little bit about women's history, because Bill, I think you and I could see how... Problematic that would be? Right. Yes. Well, the other problem that we have is that history is typically recorded through the eyes of men, and so it's like... Well, it's, it's men talking about women's history. Which well, let me tell of, you all about women's right. history. Yeah, listen here, Bailey. We're going to talk to you about women's history. So anyways, being a woman has been difficult throughout history. Okay. I feel like David Allen Coe when he sang uh, uh, Stand By Your Man. Yeah. It's just kind of an interesting series of lyrics to have for that man to sing. Yeah. 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 It's an odd one. Yeah. Anyways, Bailey... Welcome, welcome back, because you've been on the podcast before, you've yes. been on the on the old Dispatch, now this is the new, remodeled... I wouldn't say improved, it's just yeah, new. Yeah, it's just new. <laughs> After a break. This is this is like the post-nap yes. Dispatch, like the yeah. first one we were kind of tired, yeah, uh, now coming into our own. So, anyways, uh, we're going to talk about women's history and some of the women that are involved in our story... And I see a name right there, and I really like it because I know that person. So let's talk. Oh, let's talk right now. Let's talk right now. Let's All pressures right on you. All pressures on me. It's the bottom of the ninth. You're up to bat. Oh. Get God. in the box. Get in the box. Get in the box. I'm gonna run away from the field. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> no, I when when Joey asked me to do this, I thought, okay, how can we really talk about women's history? Do we talk about it every single day? Like. On our tours, which has not really happened too much. I mean, we talk about some women on our tours, but for the most part, we basically talk about soldiers, mm-hmm. which is great. I love their <clears> firsthand <throat> accounts, but there are also women who experienced the Civil War. And as I was kind of looking back through everything and talking with people um, and trying to remember my um, conversations with guests, it always seems like it's the extremes. Like it's the one extreme of the Southern Belle. Where it's the other extreme of, like, the feisty Confederate lady. And most women don't fit into either category. Or they fit into both categories. Or they fall somewhere in between. So just as we talk about soldiers and their reasonings to go off to war. Like, you've got... Let's break it down. You've got the two, two larger, like, governmental pushes behind going to war. And then you've got every individual soldier's reason for going mm-hmm. to war. Then you've got every single woman's reason during the war to either support it or support either side. It changes yep. from person to person. And it's so diverse from town to town. Especially in Franklin, for one thing. And there's a lot of unionist women in <clears throat> Franklin. Mm-hmm. And just like, Sarah Cliff is a great story. And then actually that one's a great one too. Just pointing at the one that I know. Sorry. I don't want to I, say it. Because it's not my. It's not. It's not my place. To it's not. It's not your place. It's not your place. No, I. I really love Lizzie Hoffman's story, um, and it's a recount by actually a man, who's giving a report Woo! on. I know. <laughs> He's giving a report on Franklin, um, and it comes from C.B. Ruggles. And this is actually in January 4th, 1865. So this is after the Confederates are, like, retreating, mm-hmm. correct? Okay. Yep. So apparently on the Confederate retreat, Lizzie Hoffman um, is at her house. And I can just 
read the account from Rick Warwick's book. You know, he is the master. <laughs> we are but merely paddle ones. We, are. we are. We are. Lizzie Hoffman is a widow um, of about three kids at this point. So according to Riggle's account, Ms. Hoffman took three Federals, one Confederate, into her house and placed them on separate beds, nursed them um, for about a full month through December, still laboring at the hospitals. She was able to take on forces as they came back. So she not only nursed Federals and Confederate soldiers, but she also was um, keeping stores for some of the Federal Army. And apparently on the incident of her running into Nathan Bedford Forrest after the Battle of Franklin and after the Battle of Nashville, she talks about um, how she kept the Stars and Stripes, which is the American flag, above her house, um, flying from her window at all time. Now, Forrest apparently rode by her house soon after. Um, and he, like, seeing the flag, he sent one of his aides to get it. So Miss Hoffman apparently stepped um, out onto her porch and looked out the window, and she said she defended the flag. And Forrest could not have it. He again told his aide, mm -hmm. go up to her, get the flag, and she warned um, him not to enter her yard, for she was armed and would defend the flag to her very last. She said she would tear the flag to shreds before he could have it. Hmm. Hmm. That's a woman standing her ground right yeah, now. Yeah, that is. Yeah. <clears throat> Kids inside. She's got just a flag. It's yep. just one symbol. Yep. She's not doing anything else but expressing herself and what side she supports. Sounds like Forrest is being a bit of a snowflake. <laughs> Someone's triggered. <laughs> oh, I can see the comments. <laughs> oh, yes. She apparently did say she had an old pistol, but no ammunition. But she also had brick bats and clubs to defend herself. So, no longer wow. was she going to just fire from afar. Yeah. She was going to get hand-to-hand -hand if it came to it. But... Apparently, Forrest just turned his back and he said, whatever, you know, she's too fine a lady to have defend a flag like that. What's great is I've not heard that story before. And it's, it's so cool to, because Forrest is this bigger than life figure and he's almost this, <clears throat> I don't know how to put it. He's just this, he's this myth. He's this legend. And here you have a, just a woman in a small town like Franklin and she's like, no, you're not taking the flag. That's not... No. Mm -hmm. And she's willing to put everything on the line to prevent him from getting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but we put those people on pedestals. Yeah. We put, I mean, we could, could very easily put Liv Lizzie Hoffman on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. But we talk about it because this is an everyday type of human yeah. experience that everybody's going to have. So the, the reason I recognize the name is there's a... Uh, it's 1867, and newspapers called The Union Flag runs a story, and it's written by a very familiar name. So I'll read the story, and then I'll tell you the name. There are but few Union soldiers who were ever stationed in Franklin, but have heard, if not experienced, the kind treatment of Mrs. Lizzie Hoffman, latterly Captain McFall. During the last Battle of Franklin, she was particularly conspicuous in caring for and waiting upon the brave sick and wounded Union soldiers while nearly all the refs of the native women in that place devoted their entire attention to the rebel sick and wounded. Her extraordinary exertions and persevering energy, many a poor Union boy is indebted for her, his existence. Day and night did she labor in the cause of humanity until nature failed and she sank down with a cold in her lungs, which took her to an untimely grave. 
General Bradshaw, the author of this following letter, is one of the many who were wounded at the Battle of Franklin and who is indebted to this worthy and philanthropic woman for the restoration to his health. She has left an orphan boy. Can the government not provide an education for one who deserves so much sympathy from all true unionists everywhere? Certainly, tis but a simple boon for such a valuable life. Robert we, Bradshaw. Yeah. When we think about Robert Bradshaw yeah. on the battlefield, we kind of leave it with him. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yep. Like, he just pulls through two days hot on the battlefield by himself and he's carried mm-hmm. back into the house. Well, who, who, who cared for him? Yeah. Yeah. It's Lizzie Hoffman. It's a great story. Yeah. And that's a great thing to think about, just like all of the care and time and mm-hmm. effort that it takes after the Battle of Franklin for every single person who opened up their home. We talk about the McGavocks every single day. We mention the um, we mention Elizabeth Clauston, mm-hmm. but we don't really get into her. Mm-hmm. And most of what we know actually comes from her husband after, yep. and he was actually. Um, they're at Franklin and wounded and taken and was cared for um, at Carnton by the McGavicks and including Elizabeth. Her story is very, very interesting because she grows up in Franklin. Um, I mean, her dad's, her dad's a druggist in Franklin by 1850. You know, her and her family are living in town. Um, but while she's the govern, the governess at, um, Carnton, she meets Captain Roland Jones. Mm-hmm. Whenever she meets him, you know, like, it's not, I don't think, love at first sight, but there's definitely this connection that's formed over this traumatic experience. You know, this is probably the first time she's seeing something like yeah. Franklin unfold, and this is another thing that, you know, Roland Jones, who's been in the war since almost the very beginning, He's also experiencing as well, um, but you know he's actually taken prisoner after the Battle of Nashville. He's taken, you know, and he's held until after the war. So during this time, you know, you meet during this very vulnerable state, and then all of a sudden you've got this person stripped away, and you have this connection with them. How do you maintain this connection with them? And that's through letters. So one of the great things that Rick Warwick has actually been able to get back together is of course her letters Mm -hmm. um, and his letters to her. Elizabeth's story is not totally unique. There are women all across the nation. We've got Jenny Chairs at Ripa Villa. Um, She falls in love with somebody during the war. She ends up getting engaged. Unfortunately her fiance passes away and almost as soon as the war is over she engaged and gets married. You Mm -hmm. know it's it's this strange experience that both young men and young women have during the war because during these very vital four years, most of them are coming of age. Most of them should be going to school. Most of them should be starting jobs, careers. Most of them should be, you know, getting married, starting families and moving on with their lives, but they can't because of this one thing that we as a country have fixated on. Elizabeth Clouston ends up marrying Roland after the war. She moves down to Mississippi with him. She gives birth to two daughters, and then she ends up dying in 1870. So, very short time that she's actually able to enjoy her life after the war. Jenny, after the war, let's talk about Jenny from Rhode Villa. She, she gets married, she moves around, she has babies. She gets to experience a full life after the war. She's not kind of, her life's not cut short, as short as Elizabeth's was. But 
she gets to see her kids grow up. She gets to see her kids get married. Um, Elizabeth doesn't get that. And there's a there's a great book about Elizabeth that we do sell called With This Pledge, which is mm-hmm. historical fiction. And it is, uh, I think, um, Tamara Alexanders, who is the author of that, she used 12 letters mm-hmm. between them, and I think only one of them was fictionalized. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she, it is a very, like, I don't like historical fiction, but it is a very good historical fiction book if that's what you're into. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's a really good one, and you can order that on our website. Use promo code Dispatch and get two dollars shipping. Man, Leave never, it for Bill to plug books. <laughs> never, never finds a way not to sell a book. Uh, real quick side note: yeah. uh, I have started doing commercial breaks on my tours, uh, in which I promote the Dispatch at Carter House and the Jacob Cox episode. And I hope you know that I'm leaving this in. Oh, perfect! Great. Yeah. The, that's completely what I expected would happen. Yep, and it's fun. Because I'm like, real quick, we'll promote a little commercial from our sponsor, The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. And then I go into it, and then everyone laughs. And sometimes I see them take their phone out and subscribe right then and there. Yeah. That's awesome. It is. It's really awesome. And that is the absolutely perfect place to put in a commercial break. So we'll be right back. So you've heard about the Eastern Theater, the Western Theater... But have you heard of the way Western theater of our Civil War? To learn about the Union, the Confederacy, and Native peoples in the fight for the West, Dr. Megan Kate Nelson writes The Three-Cornered War. In this, she reveals the fascinating history of the Civil War and the American West, exploring the connections among the Civil War and the Indian Wars and westward expansion. Nelson reframes the era as one of national conflict involving not just the North and the South, but also the West. Based on letters, diaries, military records, oral histories, photographs, and maps, and told through the experiences of nine participants, from Texas legislator John Baylor and Union Army wife Louisa Canby, to Apache Chief Mangus Coloradus and New Mexico Surveyor General John Clark, this captivating history expands our understanding of a series of battles for the West and reveals how individuals fought for self-determination and control of the region. To find this and more, visit store.boft.org. Not as awesome as learning about Elizabeth Clauston. You are correct. I mean, she's really, I mean, she leads a very interesting mm-hmm. life. And what, we, once she passes away, doesn't he marry her sister? He does. Yeah. And we don't exactly know why. Like, we... It's very quickly after she passes away. And I, you can take that with a grain of salt. Like, you could take that as as you feel you need to take it. But um, he has kids with her as well. And she lives a very long life um, after they get married. But it's just strange. Like, it's this... If you look at Roland Jones' life, she's just this small little interlude that eventually he has two kids from. And one of them is actually named Carrie um, McGavick <laughs> after Carrie at Clinton. Yeah. Um, so... He has that just kind of stuck with him, um, if you look at his life, and not just at Elizabeth's. I have several more women to get through, but... We have nothing but time. Okay, okay. Well, I don't want to just talk about um, one side or the other, because there are people that are growing up in this time that are both Union, as we were talking about earlier, and then also pro-Confederate. One that really sticks out to me, her name is Adelisha McEwen, German, eventually, mm-hmm. Um and she experiences the war from, like, a teenage standpoint. So she's in school, 
during the war, she talks about how, you know, she actually has a great quote about how, you know, the war gets started. Um, and she says it's over the question of slavery. Like, it's always vexed the public mind for years. Um, and she says it reaches a climax in 1860, which we do know to be true. Um, but she talks about how, you know, President Lincoln's elected, and then all of a sudden you've got this splitting, and then eventually, um, I think she's talking about Tennessee particularly because she doesn't necessarily say secession. She just says, you know, Lincoln calls for 75,000 troops. Um, and, you know, she's like, then we go to war. Now, when does Lincoln call for those troops? Is it in April? Three days after Fort Sumter. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, but she not only has family members that go off to war, but she experiences it from her own standpoint. Um, she talks about kind of the beginning, like the rumblings of going off to mm -hmm. war, because, you know, once secession happens in <clears> Tennessee, <throat> it's still a little bit of time before everybody kind of gets shipped off to, yeah. their own, to their own place. Um, but one memory that she talks about, um, is, you know, her father and her uncle were talking about the news and they had gathered in they had gathered together and they were talking about how war was inevitable. Even though secession had happened, war was coming. Um, and they didn't see any other choice but to do that. And as a very young child hearing that, you know, you're not going to be immune to what's happening, but you're not probably really conscious of, like, the political world that's happening and shaping around you. But she also talks about Franklin and the, how it gets swept up in this movement to go to war. Now, she's probably in her early teens whenever this is happening, and how she's recounting it um, is actually she's uh, recounting this in 1911, so eons after. So memory can play a part in it. But she's talking about how speeches were inciting men to take arms and defend their homes. And it's just this great celebration and just kind of, you know. Like a carnival-like atmosphere. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she was talking about how the women, you know, gathered at the Masonic Hall to sew and make uniforms. And then this, of course, she mentions um, Carrie and then also Mariah Reddick, who is um, Carrie's personal slave before the war, um, which we'll get into her later because I love her. Um but she's talking about this, and it's it's this huge community effort to both gather together, spend your last couple of fleeting minutes that you have before these boys get sent off, and you're trying to prepare the best you can. And I think a lot of it might be distraction as well. You think about women that are sewing all of these things. You've got speeches. You've got you're trying to pump them up. Yeah. <laughs> and then she talks about the train station. She talks about how the train blew for the hour the departure had come. Brave mothers clung to their sons and fathers, um, were overcome with emotion. They shook their hands in farewell. Um, she's talking about hysterical sisters screaming. Shy sweethearts tried to conceal their tears under their bonnets. This is a very emotional scene. And she talks about every time she goes back to the train depot in Franklin, she feels that. That's the one memory that's clung with her. Fast forward, she talks about when Fort Donaldson falls in 1862. Um, she remembers it was a Sunday morning. She was at Sunday school. Um, and they had just finished their lessons, and then all of a sudden they heard this ginormous commotion outside. And it was, as she quote-unquote says, the Yankees coming down the street. She's like, they are, you know, celebrating coming mm -hmm. down the street as they were essentially chasing out, quote-unquote, the Confederates from town. Yeah. Um, and... From her recollections, you can't really tell if this is 
excitement that she's seeing, I think it's an unknown. Mm-hmm. It's just something that's, oh crap. Because it's just different. You mm-hmm. think about Donaldson, that's the first turning yeah. of the war being in the Union's favor. And so she's probably thinking, you know, this this may not turn out how they were incited to go to war, and then all of a sudden, we may not win this. Mm-hmm. So it's that it's the fear of the unknown for sure. But she also talks about it being a surely impressive sight. She sees all of these soldiers, and she's like, I don't know, I don't know what to expect next. And of course, they take over Franklin for a little bit, and of course, the Union occupy, occupies Tennessee after that. Do y'all have any questions before? I... No. Okay. Feel like I'm just talking and nobody's talking with me. I don't like to hear myself babble. We just know our place. We're just sitting and listening. No. <laughs> <laughs> so now I know my place. You know your place. Yeah. We're all good. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna get sweaty. Get me a pair of these sweats. It always happens. You're fine. You're okay. fine. Okay. You're okay. fine. I got the nervous sweats. <laughs> Take a deep breath. It's fine. You're good. You're good. Okay. It's better than going to Arby's and getting the meat sweats, I guess. It is. It is. Oh, my gracious. Okay. By the time that the Battle of Franklin rolls around in 1864, Adelisha McEwen is in school, and she's at the Franklin Female Institute. That day when she talks about it, she talks about it at 4 o'clock that afternoon. Um, she was standing in her front door, and she heard musketry in the neighborhood of the Carter's house on Columbia Pike. Um but she talks about a little bit earlier that day how um, she had gone to school. It was just a normal day for her. She had gone to school, you know. She felt like the energy was off as soon as she entered the school because her teachers were stressed. You know, you enter that type of energy. Yeah. You've got Union soldiers that have been um, coming into Franklin since early that morning um, on November 30th. And it's just a different energy. Eventually, they do get sent home. And, of course, the battle does commence. And... She says that she just recalls a sickening dread that came over her, and it wore over her until the end of the battle. Now she's only in her, she's only in her teens. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got a couple of younger siblings, and she talks about her father basically pushing them down into their cellar to get out of the range of the guns. Um, and she talks about her mother Cynthia saying, "No, I'm not leaving my home to be taken over by." You know these union men. I'm I'm gonna stay up here and defend my home. You've got one man, their father, who's trying to protect all of them mm-hmm. and pushing them down. Say no, like let's get down here and away from the gunfire. And the woman who's like, nope, I'm defending my home. This is what I have. Yeah, sounds like he didn't. I'm know holding his on. Place. He didn't know his place. <laughs> she was holding on to it. Um, but then later she talks about the powder of bullets on their blinds and anything was it was but anything but soothing. She talks about the incessant booming of the cannon, which we know, I mean, there was massive, you know, battery fire that was going off. The, the rattle of the guns, it continued until, she says, about midnight. Now, we know that everything kind of stops. Just before that. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. just before that. But, I mean, by that point, it's dark. It's been dark throughout this entire battle. You mm-hmm. probably don't know what time of day yeah. it is. You're yeah. scared out of your wits. Um, they don't really have a digital clock. Yeah, well, and, and plus, like it's, we talked about how how violent the battle was and how short of a span it took place. And it's like, okay, if it was five hours of fighting, most of the fighting's done in two hours. But if if you're the guy that's fighting, mm-hmm. it feels like it's been going on all yeah. day long, mm-hmm. and like it's never going to stop. So it's easy for someone who's not involved in the battle who can't see. Mm-hmm. People ask, you know, what do they, what do you think the Carters thought about? I was like, when's this going to end? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's happening all around them, they have no idea. 
unless they're looking at their watch, how long yeah. they've been down there for and how long the fight could go. So then you take off a couple of years and you think about the little children that are there, but also women like Adelisha too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When she says she emerges from, you know, that cellar, that hiding place, she was um, saying that they were all praying and hoping that it might be our boys, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, the Confederate Army. And of course, by that point, it probably was because the U.S. Army is moving across those bridges. Um, and she said, about one o'clock, we had thought the town had been reduced to ashes, but it turned out that the only building that was really burning was the Old Fellows Hall on the east side of the square, um, which, you know. Franklin's Franklin's hit, but it's not hit that bad. It's not Atlanta. It's not, you know, which people get confused all the time. But she says once their doors were thrown wide open, the first guy that she sees is William William Bates. William Bates. William Bates. Good old William Brimage Bates. She talks about him being all bespattered with mud and blackened with powder. And she says it was this grand, glorious soldier under it all. Okay. Did you put that in your book, Bill? Uh, yeah, that's gonna that that will be in there. Yeah, that will be in there. It's a. It I'm surprised he hasn't made a public knowledge yet. But Bill's working on a book on William Bate. I am. Uh, Bailey looked at me right when she said Bate because I saw that uh, I saw that Weasley little face on the page and I was like, We're oh, talking about Weasley. He's, he's a good looking. Look fella. at that Weasley nose. It's just. No, you're a biographer. You're supposed to be a yeah. You're supposed to be a little bit more objective, (laughs) not necessarily so. No, I'm just saying Weasley. I'm saying how it was described. He was uh, he was not very well liked. Okay. He got the nickname Old Grits. Well, Adelisha liked him. Yeah, but do you like Old Grits? No. His men called him Old Grits because his inflated ego as a lawyer and newspaper editor before the war. You leave people with an inflated ego alone. By goodness. How dare you talk about Bailey that way? <laughs> Y'all are awful. <laughs> oh, my gracious. But after that, she talks about, you know, having... She to talk about women's history, didn't realize I she was going to get roasted the whole time. I know, apparently. <laughs> talk about women's history, working in William Bate, hell yeah. Yeah. The only time I've gotten roasted was whenever I mentioned men, so just think about that for a second. Um... It's because we know our place. It is. We know what we can speak on. (laughs) Oh, my gracious. Well, later, of course, she talks about, you know, um, the dead and the wounded being lined up across Columbia Pike. You know, she talks about it looking like it's stretching on for miles. Um, And she says as she walked by Mrs. Skye's yard. Now, I do not know where Mrs. Skye lived. In Franklin. Oh, obviously. You're welcome. Thank you very much. You're, you should be a cartographer Thank as well. You. Thank you. Um, Is that saw... also going to be in the book? <laughs> <laughs> Great maps. Designed by Bill. Yep. <laughs> Great with an 8. Yeah. G-R-8. Yeah. 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 My goodness. Um, she talks about seeing General Hood. Um, sat talking with some of his officers. She says she did not look upon him as a hero. Now, of course, this is about 50 years mm-hmm. after all of this happens or more. Um she said, because nothing could be accomplished that would benefit us. Now, that's a recollection of somebody who's looking at it post, post-war. Yeah. And in um, the thick of the lost cause. Yeah. And yes. Hood is already the monster yeah. of exactly. the Army of Tennessee. It happens that we're all sitting right, right by uh, the Southern Historical Society papers where they mm-hmm. crucify him yes. for close yeah. to 20 years. So uh, it's easy to see. I mean, between that and the Confederate veteran mm-hmm. and then... You know, and I think I think her account is actually published in the Confederate Veteran because mm-hmm. I've got it somewhere. Um, 
But I mean, it's right there with yeah. like Hood's on Hood's Hood's terrible. He's awful. He was a he was a loser. He was an idiot. He didn't know what he was doing. Oh no, a lot later. Oh okay. Uh, the the lot of them is to explain all of. We have to. There's a full evolution of history that yeah. has to be kind of ripped apart. Maybe that's what we'll talk about in the next episode. Is possibly a little bit about old JB. Yeah. 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 Let's do it. Anyway, back to Adelisha yes. because I've been going on about her yes. for too long. Um, but she talks about approaching, you know, the Carter's house and she could scarcely walk without stepping on dead or dying men. She's hearing the cries of the wounded, um, and how, you know, the house was, the Carter's house was just overflowing with both, not just emotion, but men and it's just surrounded. It's this chaotic, chaotic time. You not only have the epicenter of the battle that happens that day before, but then afterwards you have all of the repercussions Mm -hmm. of that battle. Um. She talks about Todd Carter, of course. Um, we'll skip past Todd because um, everybody knows about him. Um, if you don't know about Todd and you just stumbled upon our podcast, just Todd Carter, Carter is the son of Fountain Branch. Uh, Todd is killed in the yard of his family's home. He dies in the family home on December 2nd. Thank you for talking about men on the women's podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> I apologize. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I will remain silent the rest Todd of the time. Todd always gets his time to shine. Um, <laughs> Thank you for throwing me under the bus and then so hitting welcome. it in reverse and just going back whoosh, over again. Thank you. There we go. Okay, here we go. You said that there was one other uh, woman that you wanted to talk about for, okay. sur- for sure. So, who is she? Her name is Mariah Reddick, or Mariah Odie before the war. Um, she was Carrie's person- Carrie McGavick's personal slave. Um, before the war, after the war, she becomes a free woman, lives a very extraordinary life. Um, but before the war, by 1862, or during the war, I should say, by 1862, John McGavick sends all of his ladies further south down to Alabama and all throughout the south um, with the Confederate Army, and Mariah is a part of that group. By this point, she is pregnant with her last child that she'll have in bondage. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know... We don't really know how pregnant she is at that point, how far along she is in her term, but we know she does eventually give birth once she gets down to Alabama. Um, and that's her last child that will be born in bondage. Now, she has 11 children. Yep. And about seven of them while she's enslaved. Am and I correct? Three sets of twins, I believe. Three sets of twins. It's insane. Yeah. Um, so, how many children she has? Impressive, nonetheless. Yeah. Now, three sets of twins does make it must make it a little bit easier not to give birth eleven times. But she's so impressive in the fact that while she's down in Alabama, you know, she's just biding her time. Mm-hmm. She's seeing the Confederacy just fizzle. Yeah. And then after the war is over, she comes back to Franklin. She works in Franklin. Um, she's you know living in town. She has her own house. She gets married. She gets married to Bolin Reddick, and they have a couple of kids of their own. And um, you know, she's just an impressive community figure. And mm-hmm. I use community figure as everybody in town knows her. Everybody yep. in town respects her. Now, I mean, Adelicia McEwen even included her in her services to the battle. She does. Mariah is a very notable mm-hmm. figure within Franklin. And even her children and her descendants are, you know. Um, she, conti- I mean, she lives a very long life. She's born in the 1830s. She dies in... Um, 1922 
And, I mean, you know, that's long enough to see the full evolution of citizenship yeah. right there. She lives until women get the right to vote. But from her springs, you know, her daughter-in-law, her granddaughters, they form, you know, the Forget-Me-Not Society, mm-hmm. or the Forget-Me-Not Club. Um, and the Forget-Me-Not Club in Franklin then spurs the next wave of, you know, women's activists for white women. They're like, hey, they partner with white women, um, or white women partner with them saying, hey, if you support us and, you know, like help us get off the ground because we saw how well you were in forming your organization to form this community bond of um, black women after the war in Franklin to teach them, you know, how to cook, how, ho- how homemaking works, um, sewing, all of these different skills that you need to, you know, start a home, keep a home running, raise your babies, and... Um, Anyway, the white women, they join up with them saying, hey, if you help us organize, we'll, you know, we'll support you in other ways that you can. So white women then give, you know, to black schools and, you know, help them start uh, different educational programs for um, black children in Franklin. But through that comes the women's suffrage movement, you know, from Franklin. And then, of course, you know, the right to vote and stuff like that. But it's all started with the forget-me-not club, mm-hmm. you know, without, without them, white women would have been like, okay, we don't really know how to organize ourselves. Um, and this all ties back to Mariah. And one important thing to note is that while Mariah stays in quote unquote slavery all throughout the war, she doesn't escape, you know, she's not able to escape. Um, doesn't mean that other black women aren't escaping. There are women all across the yeah. South that are fleeing with their husbands and they're fleeing with their husbands who are escaping to become USTTs, United States Colored Troops. Mm-hmm. And through that, they're also, you know, at union camps. They are, you know, because of course they're segregated, they're not going to be right all together, yeah. but they form their own community within union camps. Um, I am going to plug a book because Bill will kill me if I don't. Um, the Women's Fight talks about this extensively. Tabolia Glimp is so good about being able to bring to life these communities that we've not necessarily paid attention to before the war. These black women are in union camps, helping their husbands, raising their families during the war, like right in the midst of it. Yeah. Um, because they've sought refuge. They are technically refugees. But, y'all making fun of me earlier from being from North Carolina, but let's bring in an example from Tavoya Gump's book about black women in Newburn, North Carolina, after... Um, 1862. So federal forces occupy Newburn, mm-hmm. and until the end of the war, subsequently it became home of many people who had escaped bondage, anti-slavery politics, and surely led black women to organize the Colored Women's Union Relief Association in Newburn. Officered by Miss Mary Ann Starkey, um, she became the president. This is essentially a way to help both the Union Army and both escaping slaves, you know, to find this place of refuge, um, to play this role of kind of an interlude of home. Um, But she knew that it was always going back to um, this larger goal of emancipation. They adopt language in their organizational goals, um, talking about like fighting against oppression to leading to free like leading to freedom and the struggle to freedom um but they also 
understand the world that they're living in too and the fact that they know that they can't probably accomplish so much but they're going to do what they can which is why you know they're setting up camp in New Bern they are um, which is already federally occupied Mm -hmm. they know it's a safe space they know that they can expand upon this Um, they kind of become a beacon for people who are escaping you know in North Carolina especially in East North Carolina um and so, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that women are doing during the war, especially black women, to be able to organize themselves during the war and do this. Um, but yeah, my all in all point is that women are more than just a stereotypical faint Southern belle or feisty diehard uh, Confederate. Um, that's literally all I wanted to talk about. Yeah. All I wanted to just kind of contextualize and you know not complicate things more but help you understand that people are more complex than Mm -hmm. just one thing or the other and that's what a lot of the women in Franklin show and that's kind of like one of my favorite things to talk about at Ripavilla is Susan McKissick chairs Mm -hmm. and what's happening in her life Mm -hmm. and you really see the fall of the house of Dixie you see that here with the chairs and Nat goes to war Mm -hmm. and then he's captured he's paroled he comes home he's home for a bit and then he leaves captured again (laughs) and he gets captured again and now Susan has been left twice Mm -hmm. to take care of the farm Mm -hmm. and Emancipation Proclamation is released the slaves are running away everything in her life is crumbling Mm -hmm. and you're seeing everything in her life crumbling but then for the enslaved Everything in their life... It's just starting. It's just mm-hmm. starting. And you really see... And I know Bruce Levin has the book, Fall of the House of Dixie. Mm-hmm. And that I, I think this is the perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes the Ripavilla tour so special. Mm-hmm. Is I can kind of talk about that a little bit more than I can at Carnton. Because mm-hmm. Carnton's more about Carrie McGavick and caring for the soldiers. Mm-hmm. But here, I can get into more the personal what's happening and what the world is looking like mm-hmm. for these people. And Absolutely. I think that's what makes this tour so special and so unique. You know the old adage, behind every man there's a woman that's putting up with him. Yep. We think about all the stories. I mean, we talked about Robert Bradshaw. We talked and about Susan had to put up with a lot talk, with yeah, Susan, yeah. We talked about Roland Jones and, mm-hmm. and, right? and then we also think, you know, we, we said we were going to skip over the Todd story, but I think it's worthwhile to mention that the people that go and find him on the battlefield are his father and his sisters. Mm -hmm. And then where is he cared for? Where do we talk about him in that moment? We talk about him in Annie Vick and Mary Alice's room. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's a place, that's a part of the house, but it's also their story kind of jumping Mm -hmm. into his as well. And so for all of those moments where we get focused on one thing, and I'm guilty of it, and certainly I I don't give the greatest tour in the world when it comes to this, but it's, it's... there's a story that I think everybody can relate to because there's a figure in every one of these houses that you can relate to, man, woman, child, uh, black, slave, free. It's all, the story is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a great little little nugget to throw yeah, in there. Yeah, fun little bonus episode for yeah. me, guys. Mm-hmm. Have, fun on this, have fun with this on your, your little ride to work. And, and you didn't have to listen to us talk a lot. We, uh, yeah. You had a new... New voice. Better voice. Softer voice. Softer voice. Not nearly as harsh. Just a little less abrasive on the ears. Yeah. Yeah. Hopeless. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. 
Thanks for coming. Thanks, Thanks for guests. having me. No problem. We enjoyed it. And uh, remember, use the uh, d- the uh, oh my goodness. Remember, use the promo code dispatch for any of your purchases on the website uh, store.boff.org, and you can pick up some of the books that we've talked about: *The Voyage Glimpse*, uh, *The Women's Fight*, and uh, *Southern Beauty* by uh, Elizabeth Boyd. Check those out, and we'll catch you next time.